Good morning. My name is John Cavell. If I haven't met you already, and uh, I went onto the interweb and checked the uh, church website, and apparently I am still one of the pastors here. <laughs> so, you know, it's on the internet, so it must be true. And uh, so anyway, yeah, so I'm glad to be here. We're continuing a series uh, that's been underway, and we're uh, talking about today this issue of reconciliation. And specifically, uh, Caleb asked me if I would take the topic of reconciliation in marriage. And so, sure, we'll talk about that. And, you know, I, was, I did a little calculating. I've been a pastor since 1990, and uh, about the number of weddings that I've been involved with, and it's somewhere in the 200 to 300 range. Uh, over the years, and you know, it did, and I've also been involved in some family weddings. So I got to perform my mother's wedding, I got to perform my sister's wedding, and I got to perform weddings for both of my kids. And you know, when you go to a wedding at the reception, there's often that time where they they have all the married couples come out and dance, and then they say, "Okay, everybody who's been married." you know, five years or less, leave the floor. And then it's, you know, 10 years and 15 years. And it goes on and on and on. So at my son's wedding, um, my wife's parents were out there and they finally got to the, okay, whoever has been married less than 60 years, get off the floor. And they were still standing there. They've been married 66 years. And so they stopped. They went to my mother-in-law and they said, okay, do you have any advice for being able to stay married for over 60 years? And she said, well, show up, then shut up. <laughs> so what I have found is that I got the first part down. <laughs> I, got, I got the first part down. I'm, I'm good at showing up. And the shutting up part, we're still working on. I've only been married 36 years. And so, but, uh, so I'm still working on And it's not just the shutting up. It's knowing when to shut up. Like, I do eventually shut up, but it's just knowing when to shut up. Can anybody identify with this? Do I have any people here? You know, you just, it's like, you know, yeah, I get there. I do eventually shut my mouth. It's just when is the problem. And so, um, hold on, I got to start this. I didn't start it in the last service. And then I got messed up. Okay, so... One other saying that I've heard, and I think is very true, is that a wedding lasts a day, but a marriage is at least intended to last a lifetime. It's intended. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work out that way, but it's intended. That's what we, at least when we say the vows, when we get together, when we start, but sometimes things get messed up. Sometimes it breaks. Sometimes it even maybe feels like all is lost. And that's a tough place to be. But often, depending on the circumstances, reconciliation is possible, whether it's a small breach or a very large one. And so that's what we're talking about today. This word reconciliation can mean a number of things. I was looking for definitions, and it depends on the context. It can be used in a financial context. It can be used with professional relationships and business relationships and contract negotiations. But today, we're talking about reconciliation in a marriage. Now, let me start off with telling you what we're not going to talk about. 
Uh, what we're not going to be saying here is showing you how to reconcile a marriage where one partner is basically being abusive and destructive and is trying to tear the thing down while another partner is trying to build it up. We're not talking about that. That is not reconciliation, okay? We're, we're not talking about a situation where that destructiveness or that abuse is likely to continue. What we're talking about, what we are going to talk about, is a situation where when there's a rift, whether it's big or small, there's two people who are committed and desiring for healing and restoration. They want to move forward. They want to move forward without resentment. But it can be hard. And it's especially hard when that other person, when you're trying to do everything right, but that other person is just stupid <laughs> or stubborn or selfish, or lazy, or childish, or vain, or materialistic, or cheap, or what? What else is there? <laughs> Nobody can think of anything? Because you're sitting right next to that person. <laughs> the other service, they started throwing them out, and it's like, oh, sorry, I didn't mean you. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. And especially when you're doing everything right. You know what I mean? It's like they're always messing up, and they don't know what they got in you. <laughs> Man, they got a winner with you. You're nearly perfect as a spouse, but they keep screwing up. And that does make it challenging, right? Yep. <laughs> Someone's willing to, you know. Okay, but for reconciliation in a marriage to happen, again, what we're talking about, we got two people, things are broken, things are damaged, but we want to fix it. We want to both move forward. Three things got to happen. Reconciliation requires first forgiveness. Before you can reconcile, there's got to be forgiveness. And when it comes to forgiveness, we got to make sure that we are modeling our forgiveness after the right standard. This isn't the time to just look at, well, how do my, how do my friends think I should forgive? How do, how do my parents think I should forgive? How do my siblings think I should forgive? Or, or what's my tolerance level? The standard for modeling our forgiveness is God's forgiveness. In Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is telling the Colossians how to be, and he says you need to be accepting one another, forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. Just as the Lord has forgiven you. And one of the ways that God loves us and forgives us it's described in 1 Corinthians 13, speaking of weddings, a passage that's often read at weddings. It's the whole love is patient, love is kind. You know, you've heard it a million times. But there's one little sentence in there that a lot of times people don't remember or don't even notice, but it's extremely, extremely important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it says, Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. You know what that record of wrongs is? It's that thing that you want to say, well, well, remember when you said, or remember when you did, or it's that rehearsing over and over and over, that thing that was done or said that hurt you, 
And you just keep thinking about it, even though maybe it happened years ago. But if you're going to reconcile, if you're going to forgive somebody, you can't keep that record of wrongs. In Romans chapter 12, when it's talking about forgiving, not seeking our own revenge, he says this, if possible, so far as it depends on them not being stupid, be at peace with all. Or another interpretation would be, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all, never take your own revenge. I don't want it just to just depend on me. I want it to depend on them. I want to be able to make excuses. I want to be able to say, well, they're being mean. They're being stupid. They're being selfish. But as far as it depends on me, that's what God says to be looking at. John, what are you doing? If you're waiting for them, you're going to be waiting forever. What are you doing? So instead of waiting for them to repent or doing a, well, I'll forgive them when they fill in the blank. And some have said, well, I don't have to forgive until they ask for it, until they say they're sorry and ask me to forgive them because, you know, I don't experience God's forgiveness until I repent, until I ask for it. Well, okay, you don't experience God's forgiveness until you ask for it. But in Romans chapter 5, it says that, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Way before I ever wanted it, asked for it, thought about it, knew about it, or it even occurred to me that I might need it, Jesus had already died on the cross for my sin. God had already handed forgiveness to me and waited for me to take it. So if we're supposed to forgive like God forgives, that means we got to forgive, offer it. If that person doesn't want it, that's up to them. Forgiveness ultimately means removing the punishment. It doesn't mean that you have to forget that anything ever happened. It doesn't mean that there isn't residual pain. It doesn't mean that there isn't work to do. But it means removing the punishment. It means not bad-mouthing them to other people. It means not holding back in the relationship as a way of, you know, passive-aggressively punishing them. It means not going over and over in your mind all the different ways you'd like to see them suffer so they could feel what you felt. It means withholding all of those punishments. The second thing that reconciliation requires is humility. When someone has hurt me, you know what I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about their guilt and my pain. Right? Anybody identify with that at all? Or are you kind of nodding at me like, I have no idea what you're talking about, John. No, we think about what they did wrong and how that hurt us and what we did right. And we didn't deserve it. But it's interesting in Romans chapter 3, if you've been going to church for a while, this may sound familiar, maybe brand new. If you haven't been going for a while, it doesn't matter. 
Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When I'm thinking about your sin, I need to be reminded that how many have actually sinned? That means all except for me. No? No, it means all. Well, but what's that word really mean in Greek? Because, you know, that's the original language and sometimes it's different. You know, that's a very good question. You know what all means? All. All means all and that's all all means. It means all, everybody, including me. So when I'm thinking about your sin, maybe as it affected me, I need to be reminded that, yeah, I've got my own. Because I want to think about your guilt and my pain. What I don't want to think about is my guilt and your pain. Because that's hard. And that's no fun. I was talking with one couple. They were sitting across the table from me. And somehow we were talking about this, and I asked one of them, I said, okay, well, how often would you say that you probably need to apologize in this relationship? And they said, oh, probably at least weekly. At least weekly, at least once a week. And then I looked at the other one, the other person. I said, is that about right? Hmm? Yeah, at least. They were probably thinking, you know, daily, but whatever. <laughs> and then I said, okay, well, well how about you? How, how often do you feel like you need to apologize? And they said, I don't know, once a year. <laughs> and I looked at the other one. I said, is that about right? And they said, that's about how often they apologize. And I said, I don't know. I said, I don't, I don't know exactly what to say to that other than that I can't imagine being in that close of a relationship with another human being and only needing to apologize once a year. We got to understand that we're all susceptible, vulnerable, potentially culpable of any sin. Given the right set of circumstances, I believe I'm capable of any sin. Now, I'm fortunate that there are a lot of life circumstances that have not predisposed me to certain temptations or inclinations. But if those circumstances were different, for me to say that there is some inherent quality of, about me that would make me immune to any kind of sin, to given the right set of circumstances? No. You see, Jesus died on the same cross for the sin of the worst perpetrator as he died for mine. It took the same death of Jesus Christ on the cross to forgive my sin as it took for yours and for yours and for the worst person you can think of. And sometimes we need to be reminded that when that other person has said or done something that hurts, they're no worse than us. We're all the same. In 1 John chapter 1, it says this about taking ownership, acknowledging our sin. It said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess right there, 
we typically think of that as being, well, we just need to admit that we sin. Kind of like a cop show. They get him in the interrogation room, and then somebody finally says, okay, I did it. That's not what this is talking about. It comes from a Greek word. It's a compound word, homologeo, which means to say the same thing. It means that we need to be willing to say what God says about my sin. I may have said something or done something that to me seemed like no big deal. But God says, no, you don't do that. If God says that what I said was a lie, then it's a lie, whether I want to call it that or not. And so when we're in a conflict, if we want to be able to reconcile, to move forward, we've got to be willing to forgive. We have to be willing to be humble and accept the fact that, that acknowledge the fact that, look, we're all the same. We're all sinners. We need it. We need forgiveness. We all do. And maybe in this particular instance, that other person said or did the stupid thing that caused the fight or whatever, but to say that I'm above that, that I couldn't do that, that I don't say stupid things, that I don't ever sin. Because, you know, we all think our sin doesn't stink. I'm just going to leave that there. Reconciliation requires mutual dedication. Mutual dedication. That means it's got to be effort on both sides. Both must want it. You can't reconcile with somebody who doesn't care about it. Both must want it. Both must work for it. You can't reconcile a relationship with one person doing all the work and the other person just getting dragged along. That is not reconciliation. And that happens a lot. One person thinks that they can do all the work and somehow that other person will come around. You can't do their work for them. Both must want it. Both have to work for it. And here's something that's a hard one. Every problem is our problem. When there's a difficulty, when there's a challenge, when there's an argument, when there's a fight, it's easy to say, well, that is your problem. You need to go fix that. No, this is our problem. Or you want to just go, look, this is my problem. I'll work it out. Just leave me alone. No, every problem is our problem. both got to want it. You both got to work it. And every problem is our problem. There has to be that shared ownership. So where do you start? You got a breach, you got a brokenness, you, the relationship is injured, you don't know what to do. You both, you want to move forward, you want to heal, you want to restore. Where do you start? First thing is you ask for help. Proverbs 15:22 says plans fail for lack when there is no counsel but with many advisors they succeed. Now guys, this is especially hard for us. We don't like asking for help. We don't want to admit that we messed up. We don't want to admit that maybe we don't know everything. And maybe I'm just speaking for myself. I'm sure all you guys are very, you know, humble and knowledgeable and smart and all that 
stuff or not. You got to ask for help. There's a class coming up that I teach a few times a year called Renew the Vow. If I were to tell you that I have this car, it's running really well, and my friend said, hey, you ought to think about getting that oil change. No, it's running great. Well, you ought to think about maybe rotating the tires and checking things to make sure they're... No, it's working fine. It's good. Would that make sense to you? No, hopefully not. Because if your car runs really well, but you don't ever do any kind of maintenance on it or check, what's going to happen? Suddenly, it's going to break down unexpectedly. And you know, most of the couples that go through Renew the Vow are not couples that are broken. They're not couples that are in crisis. They're not couples that are on the verge of breaking up. Most of them are couples with good marriages, and those are the ones that stand to gain some of the the best parts of it. It's a lot of tips and tricks. It's a lot of interaction. It's a lot of just working on communication and conflict management and just thinking, hey, things are really good, so what could we do even better? And we have a lot of fun. It really is a lot of fun. So we're going to be, it's going to be starting up on May 25th on Tuesday nights. If you're interested, you can go to the church website, go to events, click on it, or John, that's me, at dsbc.church. We'd love to have you. If you're married, engaged, serious, then we'd love to have you. So ask for help. This is one resource. Another thing you can do is ask yourself a couple of questions. First one is this. When you're in a conflict with your significant other, what would happen if you stopped and said, you know what? What's important to God right now? This should be more important to me. What's important to God right now that should be more important to me? Is my humility or lack thereof important to God? Is my willingness to forgive or lack thereof? Is that important to God? Is me wanting to put all the blame on them and none on me, is that important to God? What's important to God that should be more important to me? Maybe my pride, my reluctance to admit I'm wrong. What's important to God that could be more important to me? And then the next question is the inverse. What's unimportant to God that needs to be less important to me? Do you think it's really important to God that I win an argument with my spouse? If my wife and I get into a disagreement, do you think God's other going, go, John, go, John, go. Root for John. John for winning, or whatever. No, I don't think so. That might be important to me in the moment, but I don't think it's important to God at all. Do you think it's really important to God that I come out the one being right all along? Do you think God gets all excited when I get to be proven right? Or do you think God just goes, John, you got lucky. Don't let it go to your fat head. What's unimportant to God that needs to be less important to me? When I'm in a conflict with someone, especially someone that I'm 
committed to living with. There's stuff that gets too important to me, and God's going, you need to let that go, man. You need to let that go. And then one more. What's a new way to treat that person as Jesus would? I don't know if you've ever heard me say this before, but in the New Testament, when it talks about God's love, you could almost every time take out the word love and put in the word value. For God so valued the world that he gave his only son. But God demonstrates his value for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What is a way that you could show value, God's love, to that person this week? A new way. It could be very small. It could be big. But how often are you thinking of a way to demonstrate value to that person? So what's important to God that could be more important to me? What's unimportant to God that should be less important to me? And what's a new way I can show value to that person this week? Because I can guarantee you, if I'm spending more time thinking about showing that person value, and probably that's time that I'm not thinking about them doing it to me. In Renew the Vow, we have little assignments every week. And one time the assignment was three, you got to think of three ways to tell your partner that you, what you appreciate about them. It has to be real. It has to be truthful, you know, and it has to be very tangible and specific. And one of the things that came back most often when we did kind of a recap the following week is somebody said, you know what I found out is the more time I spent trying to think of ways to show appreciation that I was thinking a lot less about stuff that I don't like about them. It was a lot of time I realized how much time I was, how much less time I was spending thinking about ways they bugged me because I was spending more time thinking about trying to think of ways to tell them I appreciate them. I thought, wow, it's working. As we move forward this morning, this is just one aspect of life. But this morning as we move forward and we're going to take the bread and the cup, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, meaning you said yes to God's love and forgiveness through the death of Christ on the cross, then you're invited to take the bread and the cup with us. You're invited at, at, at any point. But you know what? If you've never said yes to God's love and forgiveness, if you've never said yes to God's offer of the promise that if knowing you died today, you'd spend eternity with him, what a great way to start by taking the bread and the cup. You see, on the night before he was crucified, Jesus gathered with his disciples and he prepared them for what was about to happen. Because see, when Jesus died on the cross, there were visible things that happened and there were invisible things that happened. The visible things that happened were Jesus was tortured, that he was rejected by his friends, everybody who knew him, that he was subjected to mock trials false accusations, trumped-up charges, 
illegitimate verdicts, and then eventually tortured, beaten, humiliated, and nailed to a cross, a punishment that was reserved just for those who were trying to overthrow the Roman government to be publicly humiliated and tortured as a sign to show everybody else this is what happens. That was visible. What was invisible is that every sin ever committed by every person who's ever lived was put on Jesus at that moment. If you've ever felt physically what it's like when you screwed up, when you messed up, even just one time, and you feel that feeling in your gut where you feel sick, or you don't know how you could go on, and you feel about one thing. What if you had to feel all of that for everything you've ever done? And for every person you know. You see, Jesus, in a beaten, humiliated, rejected, tormented, broken human state, also did what no one could ever do and has ever done. Is that he took on every ounce of the guilt, the shame, the evil, of every sin, of every, by everyone that's ever committed it. But he also took on the pain of every victim of every sin. He took it all so that they, he could offer unconditional love. Forgiveness that covers anything. And the author offer of eternal life so that anyone who would say yes to him could know that if they died today, they'd be in heaven with him forever. That's what we are celebrating when we take the bread and the cup. In 1 Corinthians 11, Apostle Paul writes, in the same way after supper, he also took the cup and said this cup is the new covenant established by my blood do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes you see that word remembrance means to look back on something that happened in the past but it continues to be true it's like I graduated from high school I continue to be a high school graduate Jesus died on the cross for my sin and that sin continues that death continues to cover my sin. And then he said, when we take the bread and the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, meaning we identify with it. I need this. I believe this. This is who I am. So we have the, the cups. You got to find that first layer. If you take the thick foil part and you pull it back, you'll be opening the juice. So you got to find that top layer. It's very tricky. Take your time. Be careful. And then you got to find that wafer and pull it out. So Jesus took the bread and he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. Each time you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together.
And then Jesus carefully peeled back the foil layer so as not to spill it all over himself. And he said, this cup represents my blood, which will be shed for you. Each time you do it, you do this in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and mercy. God, thank you for your love and forgiveness. All of which, God, you are constantly pouring into our lives in infinite supply. Whether we're even thinking about it or asking for it, Lord, you are continually giving it, pouring it. Because you know more so than we do, that we need it. We need it all day, every day, top to bottom, side to side. God, we need your love. We need your forgiveness. We need your grace. God, just to get through our day, to keep peace in relationships, and to be able to put our full dependence on you. And God, thank you that you invite that, that you want it, and that you offer it so freely. In Jesus' name, amen.